Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to Chamber Breakers, presented by Verizon Business and Yahoo Finance. I'm Leanna Brinded, Director at Yahoo. And I'm Xavier White, CSR and Innovation Marketing Manager at Verizon Business. During this series... Leanna and I will be inviting thought leaders to break the echo chambers surrounding key societal issues. For the third season, we're unpacking capitalism, whether it's broken and what we can do as businesses to pave a more equitable future for all. We're delighted to welcome Susan McPherson, founder and CEO of McPherson Strategies, a communications consultancy focused on the intersection of brands and social impact. She is also a member of MIT Solve Women and Technology Leadership Group and advisor in several nonprofits, including Girls Who Code and She's the First. She's also a published author, having written The Lost Art of Connecting, the Gather, Ask, Do method for building meaningful relationships. Welcome. Well, I am so excited to be here. I only wish I could be in London with you both. We'd love to get started and ask you. What do you wish businesses knew about corporate social responsibility? And do you think there's a bit of confusion right now between what CSR is and DNI is? Ah, that's a great question. Um, I fervently believe that every single company should not think of it as something that maybe they should tackle or maybe they should take on. That is corporate social responsibility, corporate social impact, corporate citizenship. I don't care what you call it but it needs to be embedded. Whether you are a startup or a Fortune 500 that is you know, multinational in presence. And DEI, which should have been part of all of our conversations for the last 20 years, has become the flavor of the day in a sense, meaning after George Floyd's murder a year ago, companies just jumped right up to you know, state for the record Black Lives Matter, which only a few five years ago when the movement actually um, built up in, in the United States and elsewhere, companies started to sort of support. But after George, George Floyd's murder, you saw a huge outcry from the private sector. The question is, is, is there proof in the pudding now? Where, wh- have they stepped up to fulfill the promises they made? And just like corporate responsibility, um, diversity, equity, and inclusion, DEI, needs to be baked into the business. It can't be some kind of like meeting numbers or, you know, check boxes or a corporate training program. It needs to literally be part of systemic change that companies are enacting. Absolutely. And I mean, let's let's unpack CSR a bit more and especially with DNI because, you know, we're here to tackle the you know, not so light subject about whether capitalism is broken, right? And so within the capitalist structure and with corporations um, and, you know, essentially individuals or companies that have money, um, it would be great to just kind of see from the beginning how CSR started because the cynic out there would say that CSR really originated when it comes to capitalism and within companies as 
almost a PR exercise yeah. or yes. so, or something that you know would help in marketing rather than something that drives change can you unpack that a bit more sure, and whether sure. that has changed as you've said over the last yeah. year and a half or so well I actually have seen the change over the last 10 to 15 years um you know, there, there are certain things, obviously, in the last year and a half, given the global pandemic, given the racial reckoning that has kind of, you know, super powered it all. But if you were to look back at the last 15 years, I do believe we went from a checkbook philanthropy world where a CEO, generally a, ma a white male in his mid 50s to mid 60s, would literally pick a cause or a um, philanthropic endeavor that was personal to him and would write a check maybe to a hospital to have his name or the company's name on the side of the wall of the organization of, of the, the hospital or, or, or university um, also at that time and I mean we're going all the you know back into the, the 50s and earlier when the government started looking after at least and I'm, again I have to just say this is more from a US perspective because I live here um, and obviously a more um, you know, well suited to understand the, the legal entities of, of the US government than the UK and certainly the EU. Um, but, uh, and I will also go so far as say European companies, um, British companies have been ahead of the game in terms of sustainability. The ph philanthropic notion was much more of a US phenomenon because, you know, we didn't have the social sector that, that Europe, our, our European um, com countries have had in place for many, many years. Um, but in terms of, of, of environmental regulation, companies would do the minimum to ensure they weren't going to be fined by the government. That was where we were, right? Um, there wasn't transparency. Um, there weren't annual sustainability reports. And about 10 years ago, 10 to 12 years ago, we have seen you know, transparency, and I blame that or credit that to social media. The consuming public is much smarter now because they have the visibility to see under the hood. So therefore, companies, if they are saying they're doing something, they can't hide it as easily. Okay, that's one. Two, you have had massive change in the environmental um, world that we're living in. Okay, climate change has accelerated. 15, 20 years ago, there was still questions whether it would ever even really happen. Okay, it's in our front and backyards now. Um, whether you live in a developing country or a developed country. So, and companies that have supply chains that operate in places that are feeling the real of climate are that much more effective. So you have transparency, you have a smarter consuming public, you have the fact that climate change is real. You also have younger people who are growing up wanting to work for companies that they perceive to be making purpose part of the ethos of the business rather than an ad on television or an ad in a magazine. And then you have real-time news happening, meaning nothing is kind of filtered. So everything is stepped up. So you add all that up and for companies, it's put the pressure on them to make this all part of their day-to-day -day world. Additionally, we see that companies who are embedding corporate responsibility, corporate innovation, DEI in the ethos of their company are much more likely to attract and retain employees, much more likely to attract and retain customers, and much more likely to get a positive reputation. One more big, huge thing. The financial institutions now are investing in companies 
that are investing in the future of their sustainability. Meaning, you know, when when a massive mutual fund or a um, you know a, a BlackRock, for instance, or a um, any institutional investor decides we're going to make sure we're investing in companies that are going to be carbon neutral or carbon positive by 2030. Guess what? That sends company CEOs, boards, and C-suites to be like, wait, we have to do this. Anyhow, very long-winded answer, but I hope that broke it down for you. I love it. I love a bit of philanthropic capitalism, so perfect answer. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I just wanted to sort of, you know, you gave some amazing examples, but bring it back to the time that we're in right now. We're living through something quite unprecedented. And I wonder if you could just share a little bit about what you've seen the role that companies and CSR has played in COVID. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, when it first started, companies were, I mean, there's no playbook, right? There's no rule, you know, roadmap of how to deal with it. So, you know, initially it was all about, you know, how do we make sure people can work from home, right? And, you know, at least for for white collar companies um, and ensure that they're going to feel like they're somewhat connected. And that was kind of the, the mode operandi, right? No one in March of 2020 would have even wildly guess that now in July of 2021, we're still sitting here in this kind of weird vortex. Um, But I think if anything, it showed companies that globally we are all connected. And even if you're um, a company in in Germany or a company in Japan, you are feeling the effects of this endeavor. So it has shaken up supply chains, it's shaken up orders. it's shaken up the stock market, although, you know, it seems like the stock market has kind of adjusted itself. Um, but then when we had the racial reckoning, you had this enormous outcry of companies stepping up saying, you know, we are going to fund this. We are going to be better. We're going to hire more people of color. We're going to promote po- more people of color. The question, of course, now, you know, 18 months later is how many have stuck to that? And, and I'm seeing, you know, results of the fact that some are and some aren't. Um, the other thing, just briefly, over the last five to 10 years, we've seen something very unique and a unique phenomena, and that is CEOs speaking out on um, what used to be confrontational issues or issues that would divide a public, um, voting rights, gun rights, um, women's reproductive rights, LGBTQ, transgender. I mean, and again, this is more a U.S. phenomena, at least in, in my purview, but um you know, 20 years ago, that was unheard of. CEOs would never wade into anything that was potentially controversial um, because, number one, their focus was on the bottom line and their focus was on, you know, assuming making profit for shareholders. Company leaders now have a much different purview. Um, and I also blame that potentially on the fact that we, we consumers have lost trust in the traditional institutions that we used to trust you know, religious organizations or religious affiliations, government, et cetera. I think that's a fantastic point that you've brought back to. And I think I'm going to probably go full circle on this and tie this together. But when it comes to future consumers and like you said before, with real time news, social media, but at the same time, nowhere to hide. And also different generations have placed different values, not just in how they spend their money, of where they earn their money. And so it really feels like this has come a pivotal point where as companies, they really need to listen more and actually on um, where those future consumers are influencing. So so when it comes to that, 
younger generations, just trying to tie this up a little bit, is that, like you said, and we all know, a majority of organisations currently right now in 2021, going into 2022, are still predominantly led by a lot older cis white men who are potentially in their 60s, some of them 70s, some of them 80s, right? Um, And having to navigate that huge generational change in terms of the way they consume, how they spend their money, where they want to work would feel generations apart. How does a company bridge that gap? And also at the same time, does that mean that we need to get more of that younger generation into higher positions more quickly? Like, how do you see that happening? Training and and um, open dialogue, as open and as you can be. I mean, it's one thing to be transparent with the public, but companies traditionally have not been transparent with their own employees, right? And if, if you're keeping your employees, like, in the, you know, in the dark about things, you're, you're again, chasing them away, right? You want to bring them along on the journey. You want to make them part of the journey. And it's funny, and I, I, I'm not trying to promote the book, but in the research for The Lost Art of Connecting, the more open the dialogue is between, the more connecting that happens between senior and junior staff, the actual better and more productive the company is. And what often people in younger generations assume is they don't know as much. I mean, they may put out a bravado that they do, but inside they're feeling like they, they don't. But in actuality, many, many young people coming out of college have enormous technological prowess that people of my generation don't have. I mean, I joke, but when somebody in their 20s says, how can I be helpful to you? I say two words, TikTok. So um, <laughs> no jokes aside, but I think this is very much, we can't expect everything to magically happen. And companies inherently are conservative, and I don't mean politically, but conservative, they, they, they don't want to take risks. So they are going to be slow moving. I often say startups are more like, you know, a, a rowboat or a sailboat and big, huge corporations are much like, you know, Carnival Cruise Line, right? It takes a lot to turn them around. So to me, bring your younger generations, bring um, people that traditionally haven't been employees into your organization because you're going to learn from them and you're going to become more agile and you're going to actually mirror the market that you're selling to, whether it's B2B or B2C. Awesome. So actually, I did want to ask something related to the book. So, you know, I'm bringing it back in, (laughs) making it relevant. (laughs) So, yeah, um, to, to plug your book, The Lost Art of Connecting. Uh, in that, you know, you've just mentioned about exploring genuine connections and that sort of authenticity side of it. But how do you see that being applied to companies and how can the companies then build those genuine connections and those same kind of genuine relationships with their consumers? Great question, Xavier. Um, well, first of all, connections and making connections is different than networking. I want to just delineate. Uh, networking is very much a numbers game, transactional. If you look up the definition of networking, in the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, it is not a very pleasant thing. But in the research I did for the book, a connected workforce is a more productive, a happier, and a workforce that is likely to stay. Um, When people actually have real friends at work, they are much more likely to recommend the place of work to the people they know, to even their loved ones, okay? Um, So companies now, and especially given this crazy vortex we're living in, Company leaderships need, leadership needs to make connecting a priority. It cannot be something relegated to the annual sales conference or annual meeting or the monthly um, happy hours. 
And if you expect your employees to be connected and be vulnerable, you yourself as a leader needs to be vulnerable. This whole notion of like, bring your full self to work, which is very kind of common in jargon, you cannot expect employees who may not feel safe doing that if you're not gonna do that yourself. But the benefits outweigh the risks that you may feel as a leader if you open up. Um, and it, it, it became, you know, if you look at the companies that have been successful during the pandemic, other than Zoom and, you know, the, the, the social media platforms, those were the ones that embraced connectivity with their employees. Awesome. So as someone who, you know, my day job involves CSR marketing and innovation, I kind of want to take this really to the marketing extreme now, following on from exactly the same thread. Do you see that CSR is an extension of marketing because how important then it is to brand perception? You've mentioned like your internal employee perception, your employee engagement, etc. But then when it comes to the marketplace, do you think that, well, you've mentioned CSR is something that sort of needed to be there. Do you think it should almost be seen as a marketing extension where the perception and that kind of other connection that you have with people that just come across your brand needs to be a focus? If I like to think of it as an octopus, okay? Um, the octopus has a, a brilliant brain, but the brain goes out to all its tentacles, okay? So marketing is just one of those tentacles, meaning, you know, it's one of the touch points because your finance department also touches Wall Street or um, whatever Wall Street's equivalent is in London. I should know it, but... <laughs> Square mile. That's Square it. mile. Not so, cool. in other words, I if, if you're putting all your corporate responsibility, like, acumen, investments in marketing, you're missing all the other opportunities. It should be in HR when you're recruiting and talking about the good that your company is doing. It should be in your supply chain areas, your operations to make sure your supply chain is, is safe and you're doing everything you can that your suppliers are being carbon neutral. It should be in your communications. It should be in your marketing. So to me, if you are only putting it in marketing, you are greenwashing, you are pinkwashing. Okay, it needs to be embedded throughout. And I just, I love the image of an octopus because I love octopus. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. I love octopuses and I love that I can now tell people that what I do as my job relates to them. That's amazing. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> they are the most brilliant invertebrate on the planet. So there you go. Well, segueing for octopus, but no, <laughs> love them as well. Love them as well. There's that amazing documentary, I think, out yeah. recently called yeah. Octopus, My Teacher, and it's yeah. incredible. It so, won an Oscar award. Yeah, yeah. incredible. Um, but on that note, it's it's when it comes to, you know, 
like you said, all those different tentacles, how do we do it? It's actually a lot more complex than, like you said, all those buzzwords or one unit that's responsible for this. And one thing that I really want to needle in on um, on this conversation is especially around Gen Z, because they are a future workforce. And also at the same time, what I love, I love about the Gen Z generation, um, which is, I think, 18 to... 24 Three, 23, um, yeah. 23 24 yeah depending on which one yeah is that they are one of the most diverse generations of um that we've had they're also like you said we ha have these um values that's been shown in research over and over again about values placed and where they spend their money and where they earn their money and also at the same time the creativity is incredible you mentioned about how you pick up with some uh gen c either colleagues or mentor men mentees or anyone going what can i do it's like tiktok because it's a whole other world and language so yeah with all that in mind, Gen Z has so much to offer and without a doubt are very, very vocal. I'd love to hear about how would you um, advise companies to approach Gen Z? Because in the world of work and um, especially over the last, you know, several decades, there has been a kind of ageism in the workplace where it comes to the longer that you've been on earth and therefore in work, the more experienced you are. Whereas right now, like you're saying, in order to really be able to push the agenda in terms of CSR and doing the right thing and also helping your company, we need to get more Gen Z voices at the table. Yeah, yeah. So what is the mindset or what the actional points do you think companies can do when it, they come to approach the Gen Z workforce and not just see them as kids have just come out of school? What do they really know? And, you know, what really can they add when people have been doing this for 20 years, that kind of thing? <laughs> well, I will start by saying this kind of generational thing isn't new. Right. This has happened. If you look back in the, the last century, it's, you know, once we had like the industrial revolution and you had office workers, I mean, this has gone on, you know, uh, for many, many, and it, and it will continue. Okay. I mean, as long as you, the, the three of us are alive, um, I would say the number one thing companies can be doing is as much asking as they can and taking off the blinders. You know, we have a client called reimagine gender which is an organization helping companies understand this new world. And it's, it's not natural. It's not new. It's been, it's been around forever, but people haven't been comfortable and that is gender fluidity. Okay. And Gen Z specifically right now, the statistics say 30% of Gen Z knows someone who doesn't identify as male or female. So, what should companies be doing? The first thing they'll say to you is we've got the bathrooms down. We've got the pronouns down. What about the tremendous opportunity of learning from these people and finding out what they buy, what they want, you know, because it's an entire new market opportunity. So to me, companies need to be asking, they need to be going in with just open eyes and being like, what can we learn in any way possible? And we have all the tools at our disposal to survey, to ask. I mean, you know, it's never been easier. I'm 20, 30 years ago when I started professionally, when you researched, you had microfiche and you had the Encyclopedia Britannica. I mean, you can do live polling now in five minutes. Awesome. So actually, interestingly, a sort of interconnection of a lot of things you've just said. I recently did some volunteering with an amazing organization in India that helps trans women and all about the sort of breaking down the gender binary over there. But I, I came across them through one of um, Verizon's charity partners called Vital Voices, who I know that you're involved with, oh. Susan. 
Yeah. Um, so actually, uh, you're you're an ambassador there, and they invest in women leaders trying to help solve some of the world's greatest organizations. And they're, they're awesome. Every charity I've met through them, everything I've done with them has been great. And it's often been focused on, I'm someone that's a little bit younger. I'm just a little bit too old to be cool enough to be Gen Z, but I've sort of natively got a lot of their digital skills. So they've paired me with people where I can share the things that to me are innate, but to a different demographic might not be. But I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about sort of vital voices, building up women leaders, that kind of thing. Well, <clears throat> I was a global ambassador with Vital Voices back in, oh, it's been several years now, in 2014, and when they launched the program. And what they were doing was taking U.S. business leaders or business, you know, qualified business leaders and taking them to various places in the world and matching them with burgeoning entrepreneurs. Um, it was a program at the time that was funded by Bank of America, which was very smart, a Bank of America. Um, because they were learning from these entrepreneurs what they needed, obviously, all the tools that they needed when they were launching their business. I went to Southeast Asia and I got to spend a week with a woman who had launched from, from Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. She had launched a social media company and I spent a week mentoring her. But in what we were just discussing, I learned as much from her as she learned from me. Um, so the Global Ambassador Program, you know, when you first look at it from a rough perspective, it is very much kind of like, you know, the smarter person, the older person teaching, but inevitably it is an exchange of culture, knowledge, business acumen, making friends. I mean, if I pay, peel back the, le the, the level, but that is just one program. I mean, Vital Voices has multitudes of offerings that they offer, and they are very much looking at this kind of cornerstone of women gaining power, power both politically and economically, because the two are very much tied together, right? Money equals power. Power gives you a, and, and, and gives you access to all the seats that you normally wouldn't have without that. So Vital Voices is, is playing in a real interesting intersection globally. And I'm thrilled that you're, you're involved. That's wonderful. Well, it's, it's, it's incredible that you're doing all these things. And I mean, I absolutely <laughs> want to pinpoint as well that leading by example with the platform that you have as well is that you have an all-female team at McPherson Strategies. We now so, hired a man. Oh, wow. Okay. Finally. Token finally. man. No, Which, joke, you know, joke, joke you, could, you could make Don't the case in. that... <laughs> But that, I think that's fascinating and um, especially people listening and watching in this. I mean, it would be great to know where that, to be honest, is the opposite of the default of the working life in a majority of regions, countries, cultures. So for someone who has a predominantly uh, female team, do you think that's influence the way you've approached your work or do you feel like that also sets the stage of for others to see that you can flip the default on its head well I can tell you it wasn't intentional um and I joke now that at 56 I don't know any men other than now Xavier so um it would be hard to hire if I don't know any but in, in some ways you could make the case that I am not being you know, open, right? But it's not that we're not putting all our, our job listings or our roles in various various platforms to encourage a diversity of, of thought, of diversity of people, et cetera. Um, but, you know, I like to think if a young woman is looking, you know, at 
our company, they realize they can do anything. Okay. I founded my company at 48, which, you know, in, in some con- con- contexts could be like, wow, she's an old lady. Um, so I like to put that out there because for many people who think, you know, life ends at 45, I, I, I beg that to change. Right. Um, but you know, I, I think also just, and maybe this is not a great thing, but I think corporate responsibility, um, you know, we are seeing more and more women gravitate towards that. And I couldn't even begin to unpack that to tell you why. Um, I don't want to go down that path that women are more compassionate, et cetera, because it's a wild generalization. Um, but you know, the public relations field for the last 25 years has been much more female dominated and we do communications. I mean, granted we do social impact communications, but because of that, I think we're much more likely to attract women. But believe me, I, I'm equal opportunity here. <laughs> Good to know. Uh, so thinking about your company, actually, uh, how do your clients react? If you, do they give you negative pushback ever? If you make suggestions about their CSR strategy? Or are they all receptive to it? Um, well, it's an interesting thing. I mean, over the last eight years, we've had some companies that have pushed back because we've been too, you know, assertive. But we've had other companies that have brought us on to actually push them to be better, to push them to be more. And I, I shouldn't, you know, better is different than progressive because obviously, you know, we want to represent their values, but also serve as, as a sounding board to them, to push them in a way that perhaps they haven't thought about. Okay, um, you know, we, we helped um, uh, Dell Technologies a couple of years ago um, fine tune their 2030 goals um, over the next, uh, you know, it was, where are we now, 2021, it was 2019. So they were putting together they, their 2030 goals and they were in the process of gravitating from their 2020 goals to the 2030. We were brought on to help them just be a bit more assertive, a bit more aggressive, um, be a sounding partner, um, because they knew in their role, they needed to set the bar high, meaning others would follow if they pushed the envelope on what their commitments were to sustainability. So we served as that kind of like, oh, you can push it a little further, you can push it, but backed up with facts, because obviously you don't want to put into writing things that are just irresponsible or things that you actually can't do. I think there's so much here that we can still keep talking on for the next, you know, couple of hours or so. Loving <laughs> it. Um, but there is some some interesting things about this because as we've navigated through this whole conversation, there's so much needs to be done, and it can feel like a real feat to try and, like you say, um, not just help companies or individuals or teams or organizations on what's the right thing to do, stay core to their values, but at the same, be progressive and better. It may seem like a Herculean feat. And speaking of which, you have previously visited Antarctica, like my segue there, um, (laughs) which is a destination not many people have been fortunate enough to visit. But I think with that and also what you do in your day job, is there anything that did you learn on that trip that you would apply to maybe the corporate world or maybe your values or how you've strategically gone about things? Well, I am very, very fortunate to have traveled quite a bit. And I will say one of the boards I serve on is USA for UNHCR, the UN High Commission for Refugees, which has taken me to refugee hotspots all over the world. And I definitely bring what I learned from those trips back to um, what I do, what we do, my, my voice I put out there, because there are 88 million people on this planet who are displaced. 
that are the most resilient people ever. So, you know, for companies who are in a position that they can ever hire a, a uh, resettled refugee or a newly arrived refugee, jump on it. In terms of Antarctica, um, from a climate perspective, you could witness firsthand what climate change is doing to the South Pole. Um, the waters are warming and there is an overtaking of the traditional food source, which is krill, which are like baby, baby, baby shrimp. And it's what almost everything that lives in that part of the world eats. And what's happening is because the water's warming, krill is dying and a almost like a, a miniature jellyfish is replacing it. So the penguins, the seals, um, the humpback whales and various other whales are eating this, what they think is krill, but it's not. So in other words, they're getting malnutrition slowly. I mean, it's a very long trajectory. So if we don't obviously make the changes we need, um, when we listen to Greta, this is not, can't be like next 10 years, this has to be now, we can potentially, the entire ecosystem of Antarctica will be disrupted. Um, now, how does that relate to corporate responsibility? Every single thing we do, whether it's us individually, us as a nonprofit, us as a corporation, has a responsibility to be better and be the best we can be. Um, and, you know, it, but again, I am very careful to not like point fingers because I still drive a car and I fill my gas tank. So guess what? I'm part of the problem. No, that's a, a very powerful message. And also interesting that you mentioned UNHCR, another um, partnership the Verizon Foundation has an organization that I've been privileged to speak with. So yeah, great organizations that you've worked with and amazing things you've done. Um, so to wrap us up, do you want to leave anyone listening, probably sort of a corporate person, maybe listening, thinking they're sitting in their company, what can they do um, with a thought that they could take away and tell us also where people can find you if they want to learn more about you? Sure. Well, I think the, the most important thing is continue to ask questions of your leaders if you are working in corporate responsibility. What else is next? What are the company, what is your company doing to limit greenhouse gases, to hire people of color and promote people of color, to bring in Gen Z and welcome them and learn from them? And also, what are we doing to, you know, again, ask, ask, ask our consumers. I mean, I hate to keep banging the drum, but companies sometimes who put blinders on are missing tremendous opportunities to learn from consumers who are, for the most part, trying to do their best. Um, I would say if you want to find me, you can find me pretty much anywhere, but in Brooklyn. <laughs> um, but on the social platforms, I can be found at Susan McPee, one all one word, Susan McPee one. And uh, the web, my company's website is mcpstrategies.com. And the book can be purchased at any bookstore or online at any favorite platform of yours. The Lost Art of Connecting.com also exists. Brilliant. Thank you very much. And thank you so much, Susan. It's been such a fantastic conversation. And we absolutely hope that in the new world where we're not all digitized, that we'll actually all connect in person. Um, but before we go, just like to say to you, thank you for all the listeners and watchers of uh, Chamber Breakers. And if you like this episode, which I am sure you absolutely loved it, don't forget to follow, like and subscribe and check out Yahoo Finance for more information on this topic and more.